Greetings to all those out there in podcast land. It is so awesome that you've chosen to join us for this podcast episode. Uh, whether you're driving your car, you're at the gym, or maybe riding a bike, or just like doing dishes at home, it's so cool that you've decided to just take a moment and pull up a chair at the metaphorical podcast table. Today, we have an episode that is coming to us from a Jesus Collective event that we hosted at Woodland Hills Church, uh, Greg Boyd's church down in Minnesota there. Uh, so the person that is joining us on the podcast today is Megan Larissa Good, and she's going to share a bit about our current ministry context here in 2023, uh, some observations that she sees working in the culture of, of what's going on around us, what the waters that we're swimming in. And so I'm just so excited to share this with you. Without further ado, let's get into her talk. Well, we are headed toward hope, but I have given, been given the job tonight of analyzing the problem as we move toward hope in the rest of our time together. I think most of us are here because we have a sense something is in the water, culturally. Something is in the water of the church. Um, so what is it, diagnostically? What is happening in the world right now that we're experiencing? And how could a Jesus-centered approach provide new hope for the church in the age ahead. Um, so that, that's where we're going. But I started out pastoral ministry at a, in a church up in Portland, Oregon, in the Northwest. And when I moved up to Oregon, I discovered there was lots of talk about this thing, this event that they call the big one. I don't know if you hear about this all the way out in, in Minnesota, but it, it's a very live conversation up in the Northwest that the San Andreas Fault line runs across the West Coast, and that fault line is overdue for a massive earthquake that when it occurs will likely level large areas, create tsunamis. Um, there, there's lots of conversation about it, and I got so freaked out. I, I just had this vision. I am a woman who wears lots of high heels, and I was just terrified of being that woman in Jurassic Park that, you know, she, she's like running from the T-Rex while wearing three-inch heels. And I was like, I cannot be that woman when the big one hits. So I started carrying around gym shoes everywhere I went just to make sure if the thing came, I could run. But I think about that, that experience in the Northwest a lot because when I was in seminary 15 years ago, there was a lot of kind of subtle conversation happening. Uh, professors telling us that there's, there's some expectation in the church of a big change coming. And you seminarians, you should be ready for that change when it hits. And, you know, at the time, that didn't really have any substance. Like, I didn't know what that meant. So I, I went into pastoral ministry, and we, we did our church stuff for a while. Um, but something began to occur. I'm going to ballpark it around five or six years ago. It felt like everything just started rocking. I'm curious, do you all know the feeling I'm describing? Like, something is occurring, even if you can't put your finger on what? I mean, let me name a few symptoms of what that shaking has felt like to me. Um, Christians increasingly find themselves on the wrong side of culture. Um, this is particularly true um, in places like the Northwest, where there is the least amount of Christians in the U.S., but it felt like we suddenly had made a shift toward um, almost more open hostility. I suddenly began to feel embarrassed about telling people that I worked for a church. 
Another thing that has caused shaking, um, we're, we're all aware in the American context, we have been in a period of very high conflict um, that, that hasn't just marked the culture, but has increasingly marked the church. Like Christians have always been known for their petty fights over things like the carpet or the seating, right? But these are not petty conflicts. These are epic conflicts. Where, where people feel like they, they can't possibly even sit in the same chairs next to each other. Church attendance has been rapidly sinking. All the pastors in the room know what I'm talking about. People attend less frequently. Less people come at all. There's been lots of cultural conversation about the rise of this group called the nuns, people who don't affiliate with any, any kind of church tradition. Um, but I think what isn't named out loud as often is what is rising is not just the nuns, but the level of skepticism in the church generally. I remember one of the, the first Sundays after our church reopened after a period of closure for COVID, um, one of the core leaders of the church that I had a lot of respect for came up to me and said, I'm not really sure if I believe in God anymore. And I, I've talked to other pastors in the last couple of months who said, I'm not sure if my, if my church really believes in God anymore. We just kind of get together because we like each other and we like to have potlucks. Right? And, and those might sound like extreme cases, though they're, they're more common, I think, the, than we admit. But I, I think across the board, many of us would resonate with the feeling that faith is harder to hold than it used to be. It's not that we're all out there having these massive faith crises over big questions like the nature of evil. It's sort of what I think of it as worldview slippage. It's just harder to believe in anything at all. So, so all of these factors, I think, are, are things that are, are occurring that we're all feeling. It's creating this feeling of instability for a lot of us, whether we're pastors or leaders in our churches or, or um, just attending a church or maybe not, like these, these are some of the things we're feeling. Now, about 500 years ago, the church went through this period of seismic shifting that history now calls the Great Reformation. Now, if you know anything ab about that period of the Reformation 500 years ago, what, what occurred during that period was there was a couple of key rediscoveries. Not, not of brand new innovations to Christian faith, but rediscoveries of things that had always been at the origin story in the heart of Christianity. Um, for example, during this period, people rediscovered the authority of scripture and the way that God speaks through it. People rediscovered that God is a God of grace, that we are saved not by earning our way, but through the grace of God. People rediscovered the idea that what it takes to please God is not performance, but faith, but trust. Like they, these things were always kind of embedded into what Christianity was from the beginning, but they'd gotten lost for a while in the story of the church. And their, their rediscovery in this period of Reformation 500 years ago ignited this incredible level of change and realignment in the church. I mean, in those who stayed in the churches they attended and those who left, and founded new communities, and even the nations that were affected by this massive rediscovery and realignment within Christianity. Now, a lot of people know the story of this Reformation or associate it starting with this man named Martin Luther, who tacked some theses on a door and said, like, here's some of the problems I'm identifying that are happening in the church. Um, but what, what doesn't get discussed as often is what were the conditions in the culture at that moment 
that caused what might have been just a little spark, right? If you know any academics at all, you know that complaining happens all the time in the university setting, right? Martin Luther was a professor with some complaints. But something about this spark hit tinder in the culture and ignited this incredible epoch-shaping moment in the church. So what was going on at that time? Well, th there were three big things that were kind of occurring culturally that were significant factors in the Reformation that began. Uh, one was the abuse of power that was occurring. Uh, the church at that time had a number of practices, but, but most famously, uh, it had begun a practice of selling something called an indulgence, which is basically a, a way of buying a certificate of God's forgiveness. Um, if you think modern people invented smoke machines, you should know preachers at that time were even using pyrotechnics to, to scare people into, you know, here's a little brimstone to remind you what's going to happen if you don't lock in forgiveness at this limited time offer. See, you had power abuse as one of the factors in the water. Um, but the second thing that was going on at this time is you had a major crisis in authority. Um, it, it was assumed for a long time that, you know, if you want to know what's true, what, what God is like, what, what is right, you ask the Pope. Um, but the problem in this period is you'd gone through a period where there were multiple people claiming to be the Pope. And then you had councils who came along and said, we, the council, get to decide who the true Pope is. Well, if the council, council decides who the true Pope is, then isn't the council the actual authority? So all of a sudden, there was this feeling of uncertainty, like who's really in charge of this thing? Who gets to say what is true or false? In, in the university setting, scholars were beginning to, to go back to ancient texts to discover the writings of the early church. And it turned out as they began to read the writings of the early church and to go back to scripture and to begin reading the Bible, people were like, you know, it turns out the church does all sorts of things that Jesus never talked about. Right? We have all kinds of traditions that aren't anchored seemingly in anything, and nobody can give us an explanation of why do we do the things that we do. So, so that, that fact of traditions that were unanchored left all this kind of uncertainty. Where is the authority of what the church does coming from? Who gets to say? The third thing that was in the water was not in the church, but outside of it, and that was changing technology. Uh, about 80 years before the Reformation began was the invention of the printing press. Um, so as the printing press was created and began to proliferate, what opened up for really the first time was a, a true marketplace of ideas. You know, if there's a printing press, books can go out, pamphlets can go out, more people begin to learn to read in this 80-year period, and all of a sudden, maybe you aren't as inclined to just take your village priest's word for it when you know what other people out there in the community are saying. Do you know anything about those three factors I just named in the cultural water at that time? Do they sound familiar at all? So here we are in 2023, in a situation where technology has changed radically. We are now 40 years out from the invention of the internet that has completely revolutionized the world, the biggest change in technology since the invention of the printing press, when everybody all over the world is being exposed to ideas and opinions that 40 years ago they wouldn't have even imagined existed. We are in a period in the life of the church when abuse is being exposed, 
when we're beginning to hear the stories of sexual abuse of clergies, of what's happened in indigenous schools. We're watching the, the linkage of nationalism and Christianity and the kind of abuse that creates in cultures around the world. We're also in a moment that is dealing with a major crisis of authority. Partially, it's been technology that's contributed to that with, with so many stories online. Who knows what's true? Part of this challenge of authority has been building for a couple hundred years now with the invention of science and the feeling that Christianity and science are in competition. Part of this question of authority has been building for the last 500 years since the last Reformation, because 500 years ago, people kind of had the sense we've solved this, right? We know what authority is now. We're going to go to the Bible, and the Bible's our authority. Um, but it turns out if you give the Bible to 100 different people, they will interpret it 200 different ways, right? That, that genius solution was good as far as it went, but it didn't get the church all the way over the finish line it was looking for. And we've had 500 years to play that out and figure out how tricky it is. So what does all that add up to cumulatively? Well, I suspect what it says to us is that the church is in another liminal moment. We are in another critical period where we have an opportunity, a call, to go back and reassess where have we drift, drifted and lost sight of what is at the core of Christian faith. Drift happens to every generation, right? Drift happens. But where have we drifted over the last 500 years? What do we need to come back to? This, this realignment, as people are making these rediscoveries, um, this realignment is already occurring. You see it in all this kind of movement, this churning in the, the waters of the church as people are looking for new tribes and asking new questions. The water is churning, but what isn't clear yet? What, what are the new communities going to look like? Right? Once this realignment and these rediscoveries have occurred, what will the shape of the church be? Um, at this point, it's impossible to know. Um, what is clear is this is an incredibly unsettling time to be a leader of a church. Amen. Right? <laughs> All the pastors know what I'm talking about. It's an incredibly unsettling time. Everything feels like it's up in the air. But... And this is, this is the beginning of the hope for me as a local church leader. You could not live in a more important time in the life of the church. Because these periodic periods of rediscovery and repentance and realignment shape the field for generations of Christians after. Right? What is occurring right now, right in front of us, is going to shape the field for many, many generations coming after us. And that, that isn't just a, a huge kind of message for pastors and leaders. It's really important for all Christians to hear this because reformations, movements of rediscovery and repentance aren't just driven by people with pulpits, but by Christians who are ambassadors of a new way of thinking and seeing and praying and being that works its way into the fabric of the entire Christian community. A lot of us are here, a lot of us have become a part of Jesus Collective because we have a, an intuition, perhaps, of a few, what a few of these key course corrections that are needed might be. Um, so that's what our conversation tomorrow is going to be about. Uh, what might some of these rediscoveries that reignite a new Christian movement look like? So, so that's the invitation to conversation tomorrow, is to be a part of that. Um, but before we go there, 
I want to spend a few minutes just tapping on a couple pieces that are in the cultural water and asking what kind of challenges or opportunities do these factors that are currently creating pressure on the system create? So I'm just going to name six, and then I'm going to invite you into a few minutes of conversation with me uh, about what kind of impact these might be having. Um, so I'll just brush them quickly here. Um, one factor in the cultural water right now is pluralism. Um, pluralism is the idea, or is the situation in which there are all kinds of worldviews that we're swimming in all the time, and no one worldview is taken to be the default anymore. Right? Christians used to live in a world in which Christianity in many cultures and settings could be taken as the kind of default setting. You're going to assume that that's the view of the world, the set of values that everyone is operating in. We no longer swim in that water. Right? There are many worldviews. There is no default. Um, second thing in the water, polarization. When, when we first began to move culturally into this more pluralistic situation with more worldviews, the kind of conversation and idea maybe 30 years ago was the way we're going to deal with living together and having a lot of worldviews is we're all just going to become really tolerant and we're going to learn to live with each other, right? Nobody's going to judge everyone else. We're all just going to get along. Um, that theory, best I can tell, lasted about five years <laughs> until it turned out other people believe some truly intolerable things, right? What do you do? <laughs> people have views of the world that turned out to be fundamentally incompatible. So the result is a situation where almost everybody you talk to feels threatened in some way. Everybody feels like their group is the group under threat, and you have these forces kind of pushing against each other and repelling each other to further and further extremes. It's a problem that emerges from pluralism, but has ignited into kind of a force of its own. Technology. We already briefly named the impact, but I, I think it would be impossible to overstate the impact of changing technology. It's not just about the invention of the internet, it's about social media. It's about these phones that we have in our pockets that catch our attention all through the day. It's about ChatGBT and AI and the TVs that are in every room and the constant ways we find of distracting each other. Factor four in the water, individualism. Um, th there are rankings that they make of, of different cultures around the world and cultural values. Uh, America has the highest cultural value of any country in the world on individualism, right? The, the value of personal flourishing, personal autonomy, self-development. There are pros and cons of all sorts of value combinations, but part of what this means, this very high value on individualism that is just increasing in our culture, is people are more mobile, they're less connected, they're more isolated, they're in endless quest for their own personal identity, all kinds of potential impacts from that. Um, fifth factor in the cultural water is what I'll call scientism. Um, ever since the Enlightenment occurred in the 1700s, there's been this increasing perception that religion and science are in a collision course and that only one can survive. Now, personally, I think that is nonsense. God gives God's self to be known in every form of human knowledge. Science is one form of knowing. Um, the problem is not science. The problem is scientism. Scientism is a form of faith. It's, it's a flattening of the world. 
It, it's a way of orienting yourself toward faith in the world to say, the only truth that there could be is the truth that can be measured on our instruments. The, the only thing that exists is what can be known materially. Right? That can't be proved. That's a faith statement. That's scientism. And finally, mental health. Mental health, the mental health crisis. Um, the, the rates of anxiety and depression in the American setting are just reaching epidemic levels. And it invites all sorts of questions about what is occurring in the mental health of our society and why, um, particularly among the young. Um, this has been linked, or people are attempting to link this to all sorts of things, um, particularly to screen use. Um, but, but whatever is behind it, there seems to be just a pervasive sense of purposelessness um, that, that is really wounding people in a deep way. I want to just invite you to speak into this. I've kind of, can we keep those six up there for a minute? I painted kind of a broad picture of some of the things that are in the water, um, but I, I'm curious as you look at these six factors, what do you think are some of the challenges? Can we go back to the previous slide? So, some of the challenges or some of the opportunities that are created for us right now by these things in the water. How are these challenging the church? How are these challenging the Christian community? Anyone want to call one out? Let's just to start, let me, let me just pick one. Let's start with individualism. What are the challenges or opportunities for the church with this value of individualism culturally? People can't be challenged. People can't be challenged. Yeah. If, if all of the authority resides with me, on what basis could anyone challenge me? Other challenges of individualism? It's hard to care for one another. Yeah, what's the incentive to prioritize someone else? You can't build community. Yeah, why not? Well, in what way is individualism a particular challenge for community building? What? You won't listen? I won't listen to you? I heard something else over here. People don't volunteer. Yeah, it's just harder to get people to show up to things, right? It's harder to get them to make commitments. What about scientism? What, what are some of the challenges you're experiencing with this conversation about Christianity's relationship to science? Louder. Oh, I thought I heard something over there, okay. Yeah. Christians will take the opposite approach, and when they feel their faith threatened, will reject science. This is a, it's a pattern in the history of the church of reactivity. When we come up against the resistance, the tendency is to like press against and go out in the opposite direction. Any other challenges this is creating for your communities? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of emotion behind it, a chip on their shoulder. People, people bring a lot of angst, a lot of baggage into this conversation. I feel like most of the conversations I have with young adults these days are around this one. Yeah. Yeah, people have been taught that to embrace science is to reject the Bible, that these things are in some kind of existential conflict. 
loss of mystery and wonder. Yeah, the world, it, the world has gotten very flat um, when you adopt this worldview. A lot of people, even people who embrace it, feel the pain of that and don't know where to go with it. Yeah, science and beauty. Like, well, where does beauty fit in, into that conversation? What about the mental health crisis? How is this showing up in your communities? What are the challenges emerging? A lot of fear. A lot of fear? Yeah. You, 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 some people take the posture, you don't need therapy, you just need God. That, and some people take the opposite posture, you don't need God, you just need therapy. Right? Again, that reactivity, one or the other. Yeah. Yes. From a pastoral standpoint, there are huge resource demands when people are, a large number of people are in a state of real pain and unhealth. Yeah. Any others? Not only pastoral, but it's just a huge drain. Yes. Of the limited resources that they are. Yes. Anyone who's loved a family member who's struggling or a friend who's struggling, yeah. Thank you for calling that out. That taps everybody's resources. So, so say that again. Sorry, Miss. Okay. So, so if you have a desire to take medication, it must mean you don't have faith, right? You noticing a pattern in these kind of collisions? These these absolutist ways we have of reacting. What about technology? This is a fun one. How, how is technology creating challenges for the church? It's not just the church. It could be ageism also. I'll tell you what my mother said. Yeah. Computers are stupid. Yeah. So, so there's an age issue that like people can get left behind, right? Huge technology gaps. Oh my gosh, is that a conversation at my church? That wasn't even my, on my list. <laughs> yeah. It's easy to go to church online, stay individual. Yeah. So now everything is accessible online. Why would I even show up in person? I see a hand over here. Yes, everyone can be an expert. And you can pick and choose who your authorities are. Say that again. An anonymous expert, even better. And you can always ask Pastor Google. You can always ask Pastor Google. Yes, indeed. I had a conversation with someone at church on Sunday. They were like, so I asked ChatGBT to answer this question, but which theologians is it drawing on? <laughs> yeah. Where are these answers coming from? Yeah. So, yeah, not only uh, is everybody an expert, when everybody's expert, nobody's an expert, and so it's post-truth. Yeah. So, so on the one hand, expertise is easy to come by. On the other hand, nobody believes anybody about anything anymore because there's so many disputable versions of the story. Yeah. It's like so many gifts that God gives us. We can use them this way yeah, so tremendous opportunities created in the pandemic in particular by our technology. Indeed. <laughs> yes. Consumerism. Consumerism, <laughs> yes. I mean, consumerism, do you know how many ads the average American sees a day? 10,000 ads is what researchers estimate. That's between billboards, Facebook postings, the things that are scrolling in the side of your email. What effect does that have on our psyches? 
I mean, I suspect it creates this kind of endless hunger and discontent, like a feeling that we've never arrived, that we never have enough. Does that stay out of the church? Does that come into the church? Yeah. Sorry, I can't. Yes. So lack of listening to God, silence and meditation is gone. I think this might be the most costly effect of technology in my judgment, at least right now, is the shortness of our attention spans. Like spiritual practice has become incredibly difficult for most of us. I've noticed this in myself, right? Practices that used to be easy for me are much harder because our attention span is being compressed by the ways we use technology. Um, polarization. Do we even need to say this? <laughs> what are the challenges of polarization? You're wrong. You're wrong. I'm right. And I am right. <laughs> Nobody's listening. Division. Dehumanization. Yeah, even things like you might, like the debt ceiling or any, any example you might choose, even things that wouldn't have previously fallen into clear buckets, like now that we're all in a team of like, we are us and they are them, like somehow every question we ask is predecided in a group bucket, right? That's a tough situation and to have any meaningful conversation when everything is kind of pre-categorized. Yeah. 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 Even communities that are trying to live together across polarization, there's there's so much anxiety about that that there's a caution, a barrier to relationship that often gets carried in. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that persecution complex that gets attached to like, if someone disagrees with me, it's a personal attack. And um, finally, what about pluralism? I didn't hit that one yet, right? Oh, what, what are the challenges that pluralism creates? So say that again, the first part. We want control and power and influence because everything's a competition. Yeah. It makes people nervous. It makes people nervous. Yeah. Gives us the opportunity to do things my way. <laughs> yeah, it gives us an opportunity to do things my way. Like you, it's kind of like a you know build a bear workshop for religion or philosophy or what. Like pick your favorite component parts and put it together. Right. That's the way this thing works. We make God in our image. Yeah. Yeah. Despite all of the activity that seems to be taking place around us in the world and all of what you've got up on the board, yeah. you would think that people would be able to integrate themselves better into society, but in actuality, we probably have more loneliness yeah. in our world in various countries than we've ever experienced. Yeah, so a contributing factor to loneliness can be the, the feeling of everybody disagreeing with everybody else, that creating a more barriers to relationship. 
Um, another one I think it's worth naming, the, those of you who are preachers out there, you might have noticed if you've been preaching for a while, you can't assert your authority anymore, just like I'm the preacher, <laughs> or this is the Bible, you should care. Right? Everything has to be, you have to make the case from scratch because nobody's coming in granting anything in a context of pluralism. That's a different kind of challenge for preachers. Um, for a lot of Christians, this is just very disconcerting, right? If, if you used to feel like your view of the world was just intuitive, it's very disconcerting to find out there are literally millions of people living all around you who somehow have fundamentally different intuitions about the world than you do. So we've got a picture here of the challenges, right? This is the water. Um, where we're going to go with the rest of our conversation tonight and tomorrow is what, is what hope can the church offer? What opportunities are there in the midst of, of this kind of cultural water to offer something new and beautiful and alternative? Um, what difference does Jesus make in the midst of this situation? Um, but before we make that pivot, we want to send you out for about 15 minutes here with some conversation um, points. So can we throw up those, that conversation slide? I'm going to invite you to divide into groups of five. You're welcome to spread across the room here for this 15 minutes of conversation. But um, please stay in the room so we can get your attention in 15 minutes. Um, but I'd love for you to have some conversation with a small group of others. What opportunities are there in this cultural environment that excite or energize you? Or if you can't make that turn yet to opportunities, then ask, what challenges are you feeling most deeply of these six that we've listed? So what, what are the opportunities here that excite you? Or what are the challenges that you're feeling in the midst of this cultural moment? So go ahead and find five people around you and have some conversation and we'll call you back and Greg will give you hope. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that what you're feeling as you reflect on this moment is not just the challenge, but the opportunity. Um, this is an amazing time for a movement. It's an amazing time to be a part of something that has the potential to alter the field of faith for generations after us. Um, when you came in tonight, you found a piece of paper on your chair I just want to call your attention to. Um, this, this piece of paper came out of a conversation a bunch of us had at the Unite event last spring up in Toronto. Um, a lot of us were not sleeping much because we were awake late at night talking about what is happening in the church and what does it mean. And we began to have conversations, what are we looking for in this next age in the life of the church? Like, what is the Holy Spirit doing um, as we gather in conversation with people around the globe? Like, what are we being drawn to? Um, and we came to a conclusion that felt to us both really profound and really simple. Um, we are looking for a movement that recenters Christian faith back on Jesus where it began. Right? So we've done some work this year trying to define what are the pieces of that look like? What, what are some of these rediscoveries, some of these course adjustments that would help us get back to that recentered position on Jesus? Um, so after the break, Greg is going to open that conversation with us by talking a little about what does it mean for us to be centered on Jesus as opposed to where else we could be centered, right? Like, what's the alternative? Everybody thinks they're Jesus-centered, but what are we actually, and what does this mean? Um, but we'll be following these five kind of markers, these five course corrections, these five shifts um, tomorrow as well as we talk about what, what are the rediscoveries that would help us come back to this rediscovered center. Um, so I'm excited to continue in conversation with you and to hear what Greg has to say. 
Um, but we're going to take a break, and Shauna will give you more details. Let us thank Megan for... God is at work raising up a movement of churches, ministries, and disciples all around the world that are passionate about advancing a more united and hopeful, Jesus-centered, Jesus-looking kingdom. If you're a listener today, I'm sure you can see and feel that. So, can I ask you today if you'd help us amplify this Jesus-centered movement? Can you share the podcast, blog, and social media channels? We are on a mission to equip a centered set vision of a church renewed by Jesus by investing in the renewal of its leaders. Would you consider making a financial investment in Jesus Collective today? Is anything stopping you? If not, go to JesusCollective.com. Your investment means we can advance and amplify this Jesus-centered movement, investing in pastors and Christian leaders globally. Hey, And don't forget to make sure to check out our website for upcoming events. We've got a ton of great things happening.